Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the Search Podcast. Uh, so, you know, today I figured uh, I'd, I'd answer a request to try and explain um, some of the things that I've been saying, like white belt to blue belt in a greater depth and, and why I think it's important. So um, I'm not going to lie. Um, the reason why I like to use belt ranking systems when explaining these things uh, as a paradigm is simply because I love martial arts. Um, and, and I have a firm belief that acute care, at least, has a lot to do with martial arts, um, philosophically, at least, and conceptually. Um, and the reason why I, I choose to use these as reference points is, is very hard to explain. But I think that the way that I was mentored fits into it. And I'm hoping today to talk about part of the reasons why acute care should be taught in a certain way, in my humble opinion, with an extremely, extremely, extremely low of anecdotal evidence, I will admit. And why it's important that uh, these things are, are addressed using some sort of, not necessarily a ranking system as a barrier, but a ranking system is a way for you to figure out how the journey works and how how mastery works. And, and that's what I'm hoping to talk about today. It's, it's, it's how to train people in acute care or at least my approach towards it. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm not the guy that you went teaching you how to take out a gallbladder or how to do a nerve block. I, I barely know how to do those things, to be honest. Uh, I'm the guy that you went... Um, I can do them, and I can probably get you through it, and I can teach it to you. But I'm not the best at teaching you how to take out a gallbladder or how to do a sleeve gastrectomy. I might be good at doing them, but teaching them, not there yet, right? I'm extremely happy when I'm teaching acute care stuff. It is genuinely very um, fulfilling for me. And, and here's why. Right off the bat, one of the main reasons is because... A lot of people die because of it. The other reason is because a lot of people die because of it. It is the biggest killer in the place that I live in. In Kuwait, it is considered one of the top 10 killers, and that's the truth. Road traffic accidents, top 10 killers, if not number one. And when you look at the way that people die or the mortality rates, there are three different peaks. And I'm sure that anybody who's read the ATLS book knows these peaks. The first peak occurs in the golden hour. The second peak occurs over the first couple of hours of admission. The third peak occurs uh, days and weeks during the recovery period. And I, I would say that one of the reasons why I love acute care is because not just trauma. I'm using trauma as an example because I, I'm very adept at it and, and I tend to enjoy teaching it. And it illustrates the point perfectly. And uh, it's probably show some bias. Let's leave it at that, right? <laughs> so when you look at trauma per se, trauma training encompasses an extremely wide spectrum of disease that's very time sensitive, right? So um, if you're going to be good at trauma care, you'd better be good at treating trauma patients in the ED. If you're going to be good at trauma care, you'd better be good at treating them in the angio suite, in the operating room. You'd better be that quarterback, man. If you're good at treating trauma care, you'd better be good in the ICU. All right? You don't have to be excellent, but you have to be good at all three. And when it comes to the trauma patient or the patient in active hemorrhagic shock or the time-sensitive pathology, you should probably be at least good at that top 10% in the place that you're working in type of situation, right? And 
you know, for most people, the ED is where it's at and the ED is where it starts. So for most people, learning how to do trauma starts in the emergency room because, you know, that's that's where the quick things are happening. That's where the golden hour is. That's, that's your cutoff point. That's what tells you whether you're going to hit a home run or not. It's what you do in the emergency room. And I think that concept has to be down pat. Like it has to be clear to everybody who deals with trauma. And so therefore, for you to save people in the emergency room, you have to be very good at airway problems and very good at hemorrhagic shock, period. You should be good at neurological stuff too, but those two things are prerequisite, okay? When I say very good, and when I say airway and hemorrhagic shock, and when I talk about this level of insight, what I'm really trying to say is mastery. Now, I'm going to keep referring back to trauma here every now and then, but what I'm really talking about is mastery. And I think that mastery is an ability to set up a approach that deals with a limited number of concepts and applies them for maximum benefit within a skill set, right? And mastery has been studied extensively. And, you know, the traditional thought process and development of mastery is you begin to explore a topic like trauma, you develop some nuances for how to intubate, how to put in chest tubes, and you develop a lot of confidence there. And that confidence leads you to some level of expertise and then drops again. And then you start all over again and you move your way up into a highly professional sort of capstone is what they call it in the education world or the pedagogical world. But you develop that, that ability to be an independent instructor in your field. And that's what mastery really looked like even during my training. We now know that there's a little bit more to it. And I think that the best book to illustrate that is The Talent Code. And mastery tends to occur at a cellular level, right? So um, just if I were to summarize The Talent Code, it's, it's, the, it's a book about the physiological process of the 10,000-hour rule, okay? Just as one-liner. And, and what the proposition is or what the theory is, and there's a significant amount of evidence. It may not be randomized it may not be up to the scientific rigor of the evidence that we're used to dealing with as, as practitioners in healthcare but there is a significant amount of evidence that at first you need an ignition you need a trigger to make you motivated and certainly my trigger was a wide spectrum of physiology to deal with with a wide spectrum of techniques to use once you get that ignition you should begin deep practice which I'll get to in a second. As deep practice occurs at a cellular level, your neurons develop myelin sheaths that are really thick. Now, the thicker the myelin sheath, the better two things are. First, the faster your ability is to depolarize and repolarize. So the faster your ability is to send over signals, right? So the quicker that you can depolarize and repolarize, a given action potential in any neuron, the faster you can send signals, right? That's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens is that the signal becomes more powerful and more concentrated. Myelin is basically like a um, the rubber coating on any given wire that prevents it from, from shortening. And the way that the myelin deposition occurs, whether you're doing athletics or you're doing medicine, is through deep practice and through reflection and assessment. And that's called deep learning. Okay, deep practice and reflection. So thinking about things, things like this podcast, having discussions, uh, having debates, having journal clubs, 
in addition to deep practice, leads to higher myelin deposition rates, right? And deep practice involves three different aspects. And, and in different disciplines, these are called different things. So first you need to develop chunking, which is to slow things down, to break them apart, and then to build them as a whole. So if I were training somebody to throw a javelin, for example, or uh, to perform a judo throw, because I'm absolutely obsessed with judo and jujitsu, right? So if I were to train somebody to do something like a judo throw, or like an armbar, like you see in the UFC, the first part of it should be to slow the move down so that they can see the whole move or the whole sentence that you're trying to form. The second part is to break it up into parts and have every part practiced. As an example, the leg positioning, then the arm positioning, then the relationship of your opponent or victim's elbow to your body and your torso, and then how you apply the pressure, which pressure points are available to you, and then how it can go wrong, and then to practice it as a whole. That is what chunking is. And it occurs in an up and down manner. It's just as valid if you start at the top and work your way down and vice versa. An example for medicine would be rapid sequence intubation. So when we talk about rapid sequence intubation, the first part that we talk about is oftentimes, like we did over the past couple of episodes, preparation. And then what do we do? During preparation, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, subsequently positioning. And then we designate the roles, get the drugs. So give the drugs... We look, so we look, we intubate, visualize, and then we start ambo bagging to check CO2 caponography. I just described the whole. I need to break it up for you, just like we did with the last episode that we did, where we talked about the specific parts of the whole. And subsequently, slow it down, so go into abnormally deep levels of detail to the point of boredom sometimes, right? To get all the nuances down, and then practice it the other way around. That's one aspect. It's chunking. The second aspect is repetition. And that's your clinical experience, right? For people who do uh, Olympic sports or martial arts, that's drills. And then it's the feeling. A and what you should feel are two different things. The cycle, which is basically your strength and conditioning, your overall cardio, etc., etc. If you're an athlete, for us, the cycling is keeping up to date reading up to date once a day, building up your knowledge base, doing some research, right? And have things just outside of reach. Have another goal outside of what you're doing right now. So if, if you've become very good at rapid sequence intubation, the next step is to figure out how to do video-assisted intubation. The next step is how to do fiber-optic intubation. The next step after that is probably going to be awake fiber-optic intubation. The next step after that is probably to start to learn how to do your own tracheostomies and to develop that, that spectrum, that bigger and bigger and bigger spectrum based on the same concept. That allows your brain to form a locus of neurons. And, you know, I'm oversimplifying things. I realize this. That book, The Talent Code, at least four different PhD references. So there's no way I'm smart enough to figure out the whole thing. But, and it's not the only book. I've read a couple of other books about this type of thing and this type of training and coaching. There's another one called Mastery. Um, there's a couple of others, but the talent code is probably the best for medics because it's very well written from a clinical standpoint. There's another one called The Culture Code. Same uh, author. Very good book. But the point is, you have to develop a persistent need to learn more about that specific concept to build 
a neuron network, a neural network in your head, where the neurons are well myelinated and actually polarize and depolarize very quickly. And they're linked up in their own custom-made circuit. And just to remind you all, this is what a myelin sheath looks like. It literally looks like an insulator, but it does much more than that. It actually controls the clock speed. So if your brain was a processor, right, the more myelin you have, the more gigahertz you have. Like, you know, when they tell you uh, Apple came out with this new Core i5 or a A12X uh, iPad Pro 2020 processor that's 2.2 gigahertz or something, that's what this is, right? And the Turbo Boost is like your fight and flight response, okay? Not to mix too many metaphors. Th this whole talk is going to be about metaphors, just to let you know. So if you don't like them, just skip over it, and I apologize. If I were to summarize the whole approach to, to the way that I, I, I try and train people in-house, it's first to give them a didactic lecture on something like pediatric trauma, where, where I just give them an ignition, right? I, I give them something to think about, something to get started with, right? And then I, I take the time from there to push them into uh, deep practice. First, we go through drills, uh, where we break apart every problem that they can have. And then we go through drills where we break apart scenarios, and then we go through drills where the scenarios have quote-unquote tricks in them. And then we go through drills where the scenarios are randomized, almost completely. But the aims and objectives are the same. They meet those of the slide set that we did. And that's our deep practice. And I wait for them to reach the point where they don't need me in the room during an actual code. And that's when sort of with that group on that shift, I start to pull back on the amount of teaching I give on that topic, and I'll move on to something else like Venus Access. You know, something that, that's purely a, a hands-on technical thing, just to give them a break, just give their brains a break from like uh, having every single trauma activation that's pediatric be a whole teaching case to just having, you know, a specific part of every activation becoming technical. And then I alternate between the two. Uh, similar with toxicology, which is extremely difficult to teach. I, I'm I'm still sure that I'm not good at toxicology. People tell me that I'm okay at it, but I don't know. Like I, I still find it very confusing, man. But still, that that would be my approach. And eventually, learn to do that on your own. Now, globally, as a system, as an educational system, how does that work? So, I will contend that uh, myelination has its roles in producing basic skill sets and in producing expert skill sets. But in order for master coaching to be pushed a little bit further, there should be some regimented training and there should be a scale. And this is where the belt system comes in. So in my opinion, ATLS and PALS are designed to provide you with a structured, clear-cut, evidence-based consensus, but evidence-based approach towards producing a desired goal within a time-limited amount of time. Same thing with ACLS. Time-sensitive pathology being treated in a time-sensitive manner using preset set of rules and moves. The concepts are there, but the concepts aren't at the forefront. By the time you're a blue belt, these moves are in your head and you've mastered the technical aspects and you understand the underlying concepts. But you haven't reached the point where you know where to stretch these moves. At the time of your board specialization, whether it's general surgery, emergency medicine, anesthesia, or internal medicine, you have an extremely good knowledge base for the concepts that are relevant towards your specialty. Better than most experts in 
the given field or the given acute care field. Let's take as an example trauma because that's the way that this talk was written a number of weeks ago. Next time I'll do something more medical. I swear I'll do a cath lab instead. I'll, I'll do like interventional cardiology. I promise. It's just as important in my eyes and just as interesting actually. But at purple belt level, you've got your boards now and you understand a lot. When I say a lot, you probably understand more than experts do, secretly, okay? When you look at every metric that we look at, probably better than most experts, right? But you still have a problem in that your brain still has to go through a certain pathway to produce the same results as a brown belt would in half the amount of time. And brown belts tend to do that. So brown belts are very good at coming up with, or fellows are very good at coming up with highly efficient uh, methods to deal with problems. Problems that they may not have been trained for uh, in their primary specialty, but are part of their current chosen field. They're very good at that. They're not, they're not doing an extension of a residency. Some fellowships are like that, sadly. But, you know, I was lucky enough to have a boss that, that really wanted me to guide myself and to take on the parts of the specialty that I felt deficient in and then push me towards being really good at them and then sort of re-motivate me afterwards where he saw the gaps. And, and that type of training, I think, is, number one, indispensable. I think that everybody should get a fellowship for that. And number two... You can't put a price on it, right? So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be in, the, in my mentor's debt forever. And that's the truth. Um, all of them. So, in our reality, brown belts or fellows should be able to not just understand the concepts and perform well in an operating room or an emergency room or during IC rounds, but they should be able to produce more efficient ways of doing things than somebody who's just board certified. Uh, black belts are genuine attendings. So some people, and we all know them, even at board level, they think like like attendings. They've just picked up on it. And that's just like, that's raw. That's that's like gold, man. If you can find a person like that to train, it's like gold. Because you can push them really hard, right? You, you can get them to, to be even better than you. And honestly, that's my ultimate aim. It's that everybody that rotates with me ends up being better than me over a couple of years. I hope, because that's the only way that you can raise the standard, right? In theory, right? So you really have to think like that. Black belts also have some level of progression and they have some room to play and they have some room to go, but their understanding of the clinical concepts is complete and their ability to perform efficiently within the clinical setting is complete. Their deficiencies, if any, are probably going to be in three different areas. The ability to perform research efficiently and to master their field in terms of research, their ability to master the administrative aspect of their fields, and their ability to pick up novel concepts, to recreate themselves. That's what black belts need to work on. And I, I think I'm, I'm sort of, I'm just starting to hit that stage, right? And then you have the program directors. Those are coral belts or red and black belts. And you see those sometimes in judo. Um, very rarely. And red belts, they're non-existent. So red belts are the guys that program directors need to call. Um, you'll notice that on this diagram, the white belts get two-month increments to promote themselves, right? So they get stripes every two months. That's because 
During your white belt stage, in my opinion, while doing ATLS PALS, your sort of junior years, your R1 to R2, potentially beginning of R3, you're, you're, you're rapidly progressing. You're improving very quickly. And sort of, I would say, less experienced mentors would say that you were better as a white belt than you were as a blue belt or something like that. You were better as an R2 than you were as an R5. That's not the case because I'll get to why in a sec. As a white belt, you're learning a lot of things very quickly, and a lot of what you're learning is technical, and the concentration is mainly technical. When we teach you guys ATLS, and when, when people are taught ATLS, they spend a fair amount of time learning technical aspects of things, learning off numbers, learning off procedures, learning off indications for procedures, right? At blue belt level, the increments to promotion are about three months to six months. You know, if you're taking a break during self-isolation, it's like going to be more than that, obviously. But it's three months. A purple belt, four months. A brown belt, still four months, right? Because that's how long it takes for you to pick up on something new, to progress at that level. That's how long it takes for you to become a more efficient board-certified surgeon, a more efficient board-certified emergency physician, right? It takes four or five months of doing it. You don't make incremental improvements that quickly. Mm. At attending level, it's three to five years to recreate yourself. So... Uh, you know, I keep telling people to just relax once they're done with their fellowships because they're, I really do find that it takes three to five years to recreate yourself every single time. It, it's a very slow and difficult process. You know, and, and you're not just recreating yourself, but you're rebuilding your efficiencies from what you were deficient in a while back. At Coral Belt, it takes seven to ten years mm-hmm. for any incremental gain. And at Red Belt, obviously, I, I can't talk. So, uh, you know, at Red Belt, I think your your ability to produce independent mastery is very high. So your ability to produce a whole bunch of program directors is very high. Your ability to produce a different, um, you know, sort of, you're talking about Jan Tobin type of guys, right? People who write three books on ventilation that will change the world, you know? You're talking about, like, uh, Matoxes. Yeah, Mattox is probably a red belt. So Ken Mattox, red belt. Forget it, right? The man's done it. Uh, during his training, he's done enough training to be a critical care fellow, cardiac fellow, thoracic fellow. There's a procedure named after him. There's a maneuver named after him. The guy's done it, right? And not only has he done it, but when you look at his progression, it meets these requirements, right? It fits in. His progression was the steady true grit testament, right? Really going for it. And, and, you know, people like Mattox. And trying to learn how to do something within an hour is very difficult, right? But trying to learn how to do it within an hour is nothing compared to trying to learn why you do it within an hour, A. B, how to do it even faster. C, how to teach somebody to do it faster than you can. And D, how to make sure that everybody who works in that given field can do it better than you can. And that would be sort of another description of of a red belt type of scenario. When I talk about concepts and conceptual understanding, what I'm really trying to say is how to go further faster. And, you know, just to take your primary survey as an example. When we teach it at ATLS level, we're, we're teaching all the tools that you need to make the decision, such as GCS, saturation, supplemental oxygen, intubation. But the ultimate clinical decision is, do I need to intubate? 
Similarly, with breathing and circulation, we tend to have an ultimate clinical question as experts, right? So ultimate close clinical question is, do I need a chest tube? And do I need blood? What type of IV access? And is there a vascular injury for circulation? The difference between the column on the left and the column on the right, the tools and diagnostic therapeutic maneuvers, is the difference between what goes through your head as somebody who is a blue belt and above versus somebody who is a white belt. So white belts are going to need to think about the GCS, think about the saturation, supplemental oxygen intubation, subcutaneous emphysema, attention pneumothorax signs, etc., etc., looking at the fast, learning how to do the fast, right? Learning what to give first in terms of MTPs. Blue belts. Blue belts don't need that. Blue belts show up in the room and they're making a decision. Do I need to intubate? That's the only thing that's going through their head, I guarantee you. Do I need a chest tube? Do I need a central line? Is there any other obvious bleeding? Is there any major vascular injury? And so I would contend that that is a basic summary of how it applies mentally once you're starting to myelinate more efficiently and once you start your journey towards mastery. Similarly with the secondary survey, you know, we use tools and adjuncts as white belts, and we still use them as blue belts, but we don't think about them. Our thought process as blue belts is, are we going to take the patient to the OR, the ICU, imaging, the ward, or discharge, right? And so that's how I would put, and this is from a book called A Journey to Mastery, which I think everybody should read too. That's how I would put it, is that you, you really have to understand that your journey should take you from the base of the pyramid where it's all about tools and maneuvers in your head the whole time, to just having to think about the concepts in your head and learning how to apply these concepts in different combinations and permutations mm -hmm. and then making a list of things that need to actively get done. Right? And, you know, this is just from the Royal College uh, Crew Resource Management Handbook, which I think, again, is it's publicly available and everybody should read it, by the way. But th this is another way of, uh, of describing the situation, the difference between a white belt and a blue belt. Secretly, crisis resource management uh, discussions that have happened have kind of taught us that as white belts, we tend to look at anatomy and physiology, develop a pattern of injury in our heads, and then link it to a mechanism of injury that we heard. As black belts, we hear the mechanism of injury. Our brain automatically builds a simulation with multiple schemas and runs like a simulation of everything that could possibly happen and then builds a prediction model of what will happen to the anatomy and the physiology. And that might be another thing that we should probably try and harness while we're learning and while we're teaching. You'll notice that the diagnosis has nothing to do with it. And by and large, diagnostic accuracy doesn't seem to translate very well in acute care. I don't know how to make that any different, but I think, you know, mastery and diagnosis and the ability to diagnose do not seem to correlate. And outcomes and mastery seem to correlate more. And the word seem is very important here. Then because I look at things like grit indexes and things like that in years of experience, more so than, than, than diagnostic accuracy, than, than diagnostic accuracy does. And, and that's why we have a missed injury problem. And that's why PAN scans are important. Because we tend to confuse our ability to work in a timely and efficient fashion with our ability to detect every injury. You know, mortality benefit of ATLS may not translate to morbidity benefit overall, especially not as we get more and more familiar with it. But that's a topic for another day.
As for what a red belt looks like, you know, ask me in 2050 or something when I'm old and I'm retired, if I get that lucky. Um, so in summary, I would say the whole point of this course, and I think the whole point of this blog is to develop some concepts of of, of three three basic concepts should be understood. The need for an airway, the need for breathing, and the need for circulation for somebody to stay alive. And with the COVID-19 situation that we're in right now, just to veer totally away from trauma now, because I know that some of you hate trauma. Uh, some of you have actually made that very clear, um, despite giving me a four-star review on iTunes, um, which I thank you for. Uh, uh, listen, keep those reviews coming in. It, it makes a huge difference, uh, motivates, etc. cetera. Uh, I'm, I don't plan on monetizing this podcast, but you know it does motivate me, I'll be honest with you. But going back to the summary, so... Begin with an understanding of the main concept of a secure airway, adequate breathing, ventilation, obviously, and circulation. Okay? And recognize the need to support these physiological parameters if you're working in acute care. And I don't care if you don't like trauma and you're a pure sort of MI guy, or you don't like trauma and you like working in a cardiac ICU, or you're just ED ECMO and that's it. I, I, I'm fine with that. But remember that support for physiology will trump in terms of priorities, any diagnosis that you can get and any investigation that you can order because support for physiology is the denominator that leads to mortality outcomes in most cases. There are certain caveats. I would say things like terminal cancers, uh, things like brain-dead patients but or non-survivable neurological injuries. But in general, in general, physiology is probably the direct denominator that you should look at for mortality benefit. And, you know, if, if I were to summarize what I feel acute care should be treated like, and I'm not saying when I'm rounding in the ICU. When I'm rounding in the ICU, it's a totally different thing. Uh, I tend to take my time. It's, it's, it's not, it's a lot more fulfilling in a different way, right? So for me, ICU is sort of like jazz, but this is more like rock and roll, okay? Um, when, when when you're working in the emergency room and when you're working with an acute case at the time that you're working with it, recognize that you only have an hour to get shit done. So if shit's going to get done, it's going to get done within an hour. And depending on your hospital setting, that might mean if you're thinking about doing something, just do it. When it's time to go, go, right? Don't dilly-dally. Don't wait for the x-ray. Don't see if the blood gas improves. Because remember... You've done this before. And, and this is true for everything, COVID or otherwise, right? So this was just a short interlude um, as we go through the rest of our series. And remember, the whole idea of, of the whole series is not to develop mastery. It's to transition from a white belt to a blue belt for people who may not be 100% comfortable with all aspects of acute care. There are certain things that I'm still learning. So the other day, I learned how to read a CT scan for a COVID patient. I might do a talk on that later. Um, I went back and looked at respiratory dynamics and physiology because, you know, I'm hearing that, that it's, it's more like a um, decompressive sickness type of situation that people are seeing in New York. And so I really wanted to get that in my head straight because it doesn't make sense for what I'm seeing on CT. You know, like, we all have gaps and, and, and uh, that's what this podcast is about. It's about having these discussions and figuring out what gaps we have and how to do them better. 
But, you know, the take-home message here is not just me rambling about uh, jujitsu. It's literally that if you want to be good, you're going to have to have a ranking system. The reason why you need the ranking system is to tell you how rapidly you can progress and how rapidly people around you should progress. It allows you to develop a tolerance for their limitations and for you to recognize your own limitations, right? And it, it, I would recommend that everybody reads the talent code. It really does make it into a no-blame situation. It really does. Because you'll begin to notice that, that you know, people who you felt very strongly had issues with trainability may not have had the correct ignition. You know, maybe that's your job. Maybe your job is to kickstart the motor, figure out what they wanted to learn from the start and, and, and get them back on point, you know? Maybe it's because it's a lot to take in. Maybe it's because, you know, when you taught ventilation, uh, you taught them everything from the sort of the way that the circuitry works and the programming language that's used all the way up to and including the pressure of the oxygen, the oxygen cylinder. And maybe that going through all of that as one big continuum it kind of scared them a little bit and, and makes it very hard for their brains to, to pick up on it. And I would feel the same way as well. I'm going to be honest. The first time I've tried to figure out ventilation is an R1. Listen, I'm good with computers, but it scared me, man. Like, it wasn't easy. <laughs>